right, good morning. We will again be reading from Ezekiel chapter 29, verses 13 through 21. For thus says the Lord God, at the end of 40 years, I will gather the Egyptians from the peoples among whom they were scattered, and I will restore the fortunes of Egypt and bring them back to the land of Pathros, the land of their origin, and there they shall be a lowly kingdom. It shall be the most lowly of the kingdoms, and never again exalt itself above the nations. And I will make them so small that they will never again rule over the nations. And it shall never again be the reliance of the house of Israel, recalling their iniquity, when they turn to them for aid. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. In the 27th year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald, and every shoulder was rubbed bare. Yet neither he nor his army got anything from Tyre to pay for the labor that he had performed against her. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall carry off its wealth and despoil it and plunder it, and it shall be the wages for his army. I have given him the land of Egypt as his payment for which he labored, because they worked for me, declares the Lord God. On that day, I will cause a horn to spring up for the house of Israel, and I will open your lips among them. Then they will know that I am the Lord. This is the very word of God. Well, it's the fourth Sunday of Advent, so your time is running out to get those Christmas gifts for those most difficult people on your list and be prepared to celebrate. I don't know about you, but uh, every year it seems like I'm just not quite getting the celebration right, and I struggle sometimes to feel like I'm doing it justice as a follower of Jesus. Well, I've actually been helped this year quite a bit to have a little bit more peace in my soul about it. And part of the reason is because of uh, the ability, I think, to see, thanks to our study of Ezekiel, the story of Christmas, the story of Jesus from a different perspective. I want to start this morning actually with a reading from the Psalms, the second Psalm. You're probably familiar with these words. The Bible says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth. Your possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We're going to return to the second psalm at the end of the message today. But I want you to notice how the psalmist is speaking of God and his reality in a very uh, earthly, dare I say, political sense. God almost at war, or the kings of the earth, I should say, at war against God and his anointed. Nations rise, nations fall. That's one way of describing the story of the world. And... It is one way of describing the story of the Bible. That's why this year at Christmas, I particularly enjoyed the Christmas songs we sang this morning. Thanks, Caleb, and the, and the worship team. It just feels like the, the, uh, the hymn writers around Christmas just put it right in our face. With the arrival of Jesus comes the fulfillment of the great expectation and hope of the Bible. The story of the Bible is the promise of the kingdom of God breaking in on the world and overcoming all other kingdoms. That's the story of the Bible. So if you want to understand your Bible, you really have to keep this in the forefront. It is, of course, the great Jewish story. It's the story of Israel. God's chosen people through whom God had promised his kingdom would begin to take root in the world. And the story of Christmas then, if you put this together, the story of Christmas is that with the birth of the Messiah, we sang about this morning, the birth of the king, the promise has at long last begun to be fulfilled. That's why we sang Oh, come all you joyful, all you joyful, how's it go? Come all you faithful. Joyful and what? Triumphant. I mean, that'll help you celebrate Christmas. There's a new king in town. There's a new king. All the rulers of the world are put on notice. So I want you to keep, try to keep all that in mind as we begin to understand a passage like the one we're tasked studying today, Ezekiel 29 through 32. I asked Megan this morning, right before we came out, I said, so what do you think of the passage? And she said, Egypt has it coming. It's a good way of summarizing it. Here again, we read about the kingdoms of the world, the terror that they bring into the world, and the arrival of God's kingdom, when God would take over the world and rule once again and once and for all. The kingdoms of the world, the terror uh, that they bring into the world, and the arrival of God's kingdom. The Bible makes this promise. God will bring to an end every global power that his people simply cannot trust so that he alone is the hope of their salvation. 
So let's get a quick reminder of what this part of Ezekiel contains. Last week, we noted that following the announcement that the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem had begun in Ezekiel chapter 24, the next eight chapters concentrate on prophetic words of judgment against seven nations. And yes, the number seven there is significant for all kinds of reasons. We looked at that last week. Now, we studied the first six of those nations in our message last week. Chapters 29 to 32, these four chapters contain seven prophecies against one nation, the nation of Egypt, the last and the greatest of these seven nations. Let's think for a moment about the significance of the many kingdoms of the world in the Bible. Last week, much much of our time was centered on the city-state of Tyre, which represented, we suggested, the great achievements of human civilization. Egypt, we might say, represents the great power of human empires. Now, we all know, because you remember a few things from your history class, how significant empires are to the history of the world. But do you know how important they are the Bible. Recall again the infamous story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. The Bible tells us that God interrupted the project by the introduction of foreign languages so that the people were scattered over the face of the earth. But did you know there's more to the story? The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 32, we read this, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance... When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Now, what we are told in that passage, if we're taking it at its face value, we are told here that the borders of the peoples were fixed by God, but we are also told that when God did that at the Tower of Babel, he disinherited the nations and put them under the authority of what the Bible calls the sons of God. Now, that phrase refers to members of God's divine council, other gods, if you will. And you said... I thought there was only one God. Well, yes and no. The God of Israel, known by his name Yahweh, is the great God who has no rival. He is the only true God in the sense that he is the self-existent God. But the Old Testament makes it plain in various passages that God himself has a divine counsel other lesser deities, other gods that God himself created. And his judgment against the nations at Babel consisted of him handing over the nations to the authority and rule of these lesser gods. That's what Deuteronomy 32 is telling us quite explicitly. Now, I know that for some of us, this may sound so mythological But the important point that I want to make here is that it is also very much in touch with reality. 
The focus is not on some mysterious otherworldly realm, but the focus is entirely on the same earth that we inhabit today. So in Ezekiel 31, I'm going to just be jumping around through these four chapters. So I hope you have your Bible ready. (laughs) This is where a print Bible will help you probably get there faster. Ezekiel 31, Egypt is compared to another great world empire that had recently fallen in human history. And that was the empire of Assyria. In verse 3, we're in Ezekiel 31. In verse 3, Assyria is described as a cedar in, here it is again, John, it's just all over the place, Lebanon, a cedar in Lebanon of towering height, verse 3 says. In verse 5, we are told it towered high above all the trees of the field. And then you've got to see Ezekiel 31, verse 9. Look at it. It says that the, uh, the nation of Assyria towered high above all the trees of the field and all the trees of Eden envied it. Did you catch that? The trees of Eden? You see, the picture that Ezekiel is painting here is not one of mythology, but of real historical kingdoms. The message is as political as it sounds. But in the biblical worldview of Ezekiel's audience, the understanding is that these political powers, these kingdoms of men, these empires, are not just about earthly realities with some other story going on upstairs in some supernatural realm. Rather, it is earth and the nations that inhabit the planet is where all the action is taking place. That's the story that the Bible tells. It's a story of a God who made a world and made us human beings to inhabit it. And God intends for heaven and earth, if you will, to meet together. That's the whole point of what Eden was all about. So as Ezekiel here brings this prophecy against Egypt, again, it's a prolonged one, four chapters. Keep in mind who he's speaking to. (laughs) I doubt Ezekiel, like, put this all together in a letter and mailed it to the Pharaoh in Egypt. The message, a prophecy against the Egyptians, was written and directed to whom? To Ezekiel's fellow exiles. And the whole point of Egypt's collapse, theologically speaking, speaking, is given back in chapter 29, Ezekiel 29, verse 16. It was part of our scripture reading this morning. Here's what it says. This is our key verse, I think, to the whole four chapters. It shall never again be, God says of Egypt, the reliance of the house of Israel, recalling their iniquity when they turn to them for aid. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. So the whole message for Ezekiel and his exiles is that what God wants for his people is that they would stop trusting in the nations of the world and trust solely on him. Because God really is a king. He is to be his people's king. He is the greatest king. So as the kingdom of God breaks in on the world, God's people, the citizens of his kingdom, must be loyal to him and to him alone. And God promises in Ezekiel 29, 16, that they will be because God will see to it that he has broken down the power of all the other nations under the control of the lesser deities. 
So when we think of the kingdom of God, then we must not think of it being up there or in heaven as if the goal of the Bible is that we escape the earth and get to our final destination. No, the kingdom of God is meant to be here on earth with a power greater than any kingdom of man has ever known. And so... The citizens of God's kingdom will no longer rely on the power of any other kingdom, but will trust the Lord alone. Now, as we look through these chapters and their denunciation of Egypt, Ezekiel gives us a reminder of the terror that the kingdoms of men bring upon the world. God's people must not rely on the kingdoms of men because God's intent As we're focusing on in the fourth Sunday of Advent, God's intent is to rule his world with love, with peace, with justice, not with terror, not with oppression. So in chapter 29, God says he will judge Egypt because they have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel, which broke and shattered Israel when they tried to depend on them. That's verses 6 and 7. Now, God could have put here the blame on his own people for trusting in Egypt. He does that in other places. But the aim here, once again, is to make it inconceivable that God's people would ever depend on such futile assistance ever again. Also in this chapter, still in the 29th chapter, God says he will judge Egypt because, as verses 3 and 9 report, The nation claims, the Nile is mine, and I made it. That's an expression of sovereignty, a sort of red line statement, claiming territory that the nation will in no way cede to no other sovereign. But here is God, through his prophet, essentially declaring war against Egypt and all the other world empires like them. Does this make God an aggressive emperor of history like all the other nations that have come and gone? But no, not if we see the empires of the world that God is going up against in full color. And that's what Ezekiel hopes to do in chapter 31, where Egypt is likened to this great civilization of Assyria, and we see that the problem comes once more because of human pride. Look at Ezekiel 31, 10 and 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it towered high and set its top among the clouds and its heart was proud of its height, I will give it into the hand of a mighty one of the nations. He shall surely deal with it as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. So notice what God's saying. God will not allow Egyptian power to endure because of the corruption that comes from its pride. And it's the same with every other empire the world has ever known. Chapter 32, God says, he will not tolerate these expressions of sovereignty, verse 2, because they end up, each in its own way, polluting the rivers that God made. Now you understand. Has there ever been a world superpower that spreads to other nations only beauty and justice 
and peace around the world. Don't we find with every act of imperialism or colonialism that whatever good, on the one hand, you might say has come from it, there are countless problems intertwined with it all. So, God promises to do with Egypt what he has done with every other empire before or since. In Ezekiel 32, verse 12, he promises to, quote, bring to ruin the pride of Egypt. And in the last of the seven prophecies, in Ezekiel 32, verse 17, Ezekiel describes the fall of Egypt as the nation joining all the others in the trash bin of history. It's really a stirring uh, prophecy at the end of Ezekiel 32. They will all go down to the pit, he says, joining Assyria, Elam, Meshach, Tubal, Edom, and the princes of the north with the Sidonians, ancient empires that have come and gone, many of whom long since forgotten. God promises to do to Egypt what he has done to all the other nations. He will bring judgment on them all. Why? Because of the terror that they have spread in the land of the living. You simply cannot sidestep the picture Ezekiel is painting for his audience, for the people of God. It is an apocalyptic picture. He's describing the literal collapse of world empires. It's happened all throughout human history, but most of us in this room simply find it impossible to even imagine. I came across this Amazon show, and I started watching. I'm always behind the times. It's called The Man in the High Castle. It tries to imagine the United States had we lost World War II to Nazi Germany. What a different world it might have been had that happened. You know, the Bible actually has a phrase for such apocalyptic moments in history, like when empires collapse. I mean, they're cataclysmic. The the phrase the Bible used to describe those kinds of actual moments in history, the day of the Lord. In fact, Ezekiel uses the phrase in reference to the fall of Egypt in chapter 30. But his concern, again, is primarily with the exiles of Judah and the hope that they, with the promise of Egypt's eventual collapse, will be shaken from their tendency to put their hope in such unreliable powers. But then again, of course, Egypt was not the last world empire. And the arrival of the day of the Lord upon Egypt was meant to point forward to a more decisive day of the Lord yet to come. God wants his people to be prepared for it so that when it comes, they would have their feet firmly planted on solid ground, on God himself and on his eternal kingdom, which God ensures his people will not go down with the kingdoms of human terror. So see now how Ezekiel prepares his audience, 
you and me, reading his prophecies all these hundreds of years later. See how he prepares us for the arrival of God's kingdom. It's actually here in our text. Megan read it, but if you blink, you'll miss it. You see, there's an oddity in the seven prophecies against Egypt. I told you, chapters 29 to 32, you're going to find seven distinct prophecies against Egypt. But there's an oddity in the seven prophecies that, if you're watching carefully, should catch your attention. Six of the seven prophecies come with a date notice. We've seen these all throughout um, the prophecies of Ezekiel. In fact, they're really fascinating because, as most commentators will point out, they correspond very much in sync with what we know from extra-biblical sources about what's actually happening in history. Really fascinating stuff. But (laughs) here's what we notice about these seven prophecies. They all come in chronological order except Ezekiel 29.17. Ezekiel 29.17, the second of the seven prophecies, jumps way ahead and out of order. Look at it. It takes place, according to Ezekiel, the 27th year of Ezekiel's exile. In other words, that would make it the last of Ezekiel's dated prophecies, coming after chapters 40 to 48. In other words, these may well be the very last words that Ezekiel received from God to speak to his audience. Yeah, you'd be surprised. I mean, it's in chapter 29. It's not in chapter 48, but here it is. According to the date notice, these are the last words that apparently that Ezekiel received from God to speak. And they tell us of the final overthrow of Egypt by Nebuchadnezzar, the fulfillment then of the six other prophecies in these chapters spoken against the Pharaoh. But then, at the very end of this prophecy, the last verse of chapter 29, which in some ways might even be understood to be the very last words that Ezekiel spoke, In verse 21, we read that on that day, God will cause a horn to spring up for the house of Israel. Now, we don't speak that way, but this is a biblical uh, metaphor. We know exactly what is being described here. In other words, when the last empire falls, like Egypt, that will be the day. When God's kingdom, through his people, will begin to emerge. Once and for all, never to be undone, never to be overthrown. Now, Ezekiel's audience would, of course, have to wait for the day to come. Surely they came to understand that Egypt was just representative of the great empires of the world. And waiting, of course... Incredibly hard. It would be nice if we could just get to that final day of the Lord, just shortcut. Let's just get to it right away. Enough of these rise and fall of the nations. And one day, the gospel of Matthew tells us, 
we almost had a shortcut. The devil took Jesus up to a very high mountain, we read in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. You remember it. And offered all of them to him. You can have them all, the devil says. If what? Just fall down and worship me. Now, if you're reading your Bible then, as the inbreaking, the promise of God's, the inbreaking of God's kingdom, you know this is a real offer. This is a shortcut to what has been promised all throughout the Old Testament. But it's a compromise. And Jesus will have none of it. He says this in Matthew 4.10. Interesting response. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. See, there can be no everlasting kingdom if we compromise with the devil. And that's still a temptation for God's people to this day, to gain a little political power in the kingdoms of men, all while making deals with the devil. Surely God's people should have nothing to do with that. But the kingdom of God will come only when the people of God have total allegiance to Yahweh, the God of Israel. No compromises. And so, the waiting continued. There could be no shortcuts, but there would also be no alteration of the plan. Jesus really did come for the kingdoms of men, as Satan knew quite well. In fact, the way the gospel writers tell the story of Jesus, and especially Mark's telling of the gospel, is by ultimately framing the whole story of Jesus as an apocalypse. Here was Jesus announcing the arrival of the kingdom of Israel's God, urging his people to repent and to stop trusting in unreliable powers and confronting the powers of the world with the claim that he was now in charge once and for all. That's like two rival political nations coming up against each other with all their firepower. This is apocalyptic language. You see, there was an empire on the scene in Jesus' day. Rome. And yet, in a surprising twist as we read the Gospels, Rome would play Babylon. Coming to at the hand of God, destroy Israel's temple just as Nebuchadnezzar had done six centuries earlier in Ezekiel's day. A true apocalypse. For the nation of Israel, there's no other word for it. The destruction of the second temple was like cataclysmic for their faith. But also, according to the way the gospel writers tell the story of Jesus, also the vindication that Jesus was, in fact, who he claimed to be, Israel's long-awaited Messiah, her true temple, the very manifestation of the presence of God in her midst. 
So when Rome torched Jerusalem in AD 70, Jesus was vindicated as a true prophet and Israel's rightful king. Now, before we close this morning, I have one other passage that I'd like you to turn to, and it's in the book of Revelation, chapter 11. Revelation, chapter 11. As the Apostle John received this message from the Lord, he writes about, in verse 15, the seventh angel, the seventh angel, blowing his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You see, for John, just like the other gospel writers, the moment had come. The moment had arrived. Jesus was vindicated. He truly was Israel's king. He truly had brought with him the arrival of the long-awaited kingdom of God. God himself, the God of Israel, had taken his power and begun to reign. Look what it says in verse 16. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And in his name, all oppression will cease. The reign of terror has been defeated. But how? How? Did the kingdom of God break in and overthrow the kingdoms of men and the reign of, of terror with a more terrible reign? No. As John knew quite well, and already wrote about in Revelation, it broke in by a suffering love that conquered all oppression. A suffering love. Everyone in the world today believes that love, not hate, is what the world needs. But only Jesus came with a love even for the haters. Only Jesus gave up his life for sinners. One might perhaps die for a good person, but God shows his love, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is how the kingdom of God would break in. With a display of suffering love, laying down his life, to overcome the empires of the world. And then, verse 18, still in Revelation 11. Here it is. We saw it earlier, Psalm 2. The nations raged, but your wrath came. 
and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying, look what it says, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Make no mistake, the kingdom of God is a kingdom meant to be on earth as it is in heaven. And since Jesus brought with him this kingdom of God, his intent by his wrath is not further destruction, but a destroying of the destroyers of the earth. It is the God of Israel who brings life, not death. It is the God of Israel who brings beauty to the world, not destruction. It is the God of Israel who brings matter, not annihilation. And so, what we come to celebrate at Christmas is, once again, the celebration of the arrival of God's kingdom in the Son. A kingdom of love that truly overcomes all the hatred, terror, and destruction of the kingdoms of men. And what we must commit to as Christians is the worship of Jesus full submission to his ways, calling the world to follow him with us, not to follow us as if we were him. Full submission to King Jesus is the hope of the world and the message we now proclaim. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Would you awaken us once again, O Lord, to the joy of the first Christians who took up their pens and wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the New Testament, explaining to us how it is that shockingly, subversively, but definitively, Jesus of Nazareth had done what had been promised for so long. What Ezekiel and his fellow exiles could only hope for. The end of the long night of exile. The forgiveness of sins. The overthrow of the gods of the nations. The end of the reign of terror. All in and only in submission to King Jesus. So we who claim to know him, may we be the first to come with humility, turning away from our pride, turning away from a false gospel that we've preached too long, calling people to follow us instead of calling people to follow Christ with us. Continue to reform and shape us, O God, in the love of Christ for sinners. May we be the first to come, turning from our sins, trusting in Jesus, receiving his grace, and sharing this good news once more this Christmas season. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.